0: Welcome to Rewrite Radio, the podcast from the Festival of Faith and Writing. I'm Lisa Ann Cockrell, the director of the festival, and I'll be your host. This is the place you can listen back to conversations we've had with writers and readers as we celebrated the written word together for over two decades. In each episode, you'll hear a session that took place at the festival. It might be a reading, an interview, a lecture, panel conversation, or something else entirely. Today's episode of Rewrite Radio features M.T. Anderson at the 2016 Festival of Faith and Writing and his talk titled The Sacred and the Strange. M.T., or Tobin as his friends call him, talked about how paying attention to what might be considered unusual religious practices can help us see our own faith with new eyes. He says literature has a similar power to help us see our lives more clearly by taking what we think we know and putting it at a distance by making it strange. Tobin has written over 40 books for young adults, including The Astonishing Life of Octavian Nothing, which won the National Book Award for Young People's Literature, and Feed, winner of the Los Angeles Times Book Prize. His first graphic novel, Evane, The Night of the Lion, came out earlier this year, and his next novel, Landscape with Invisible Hand, is set to come out September 2017. Joining us to talk about The Sacred and the Strange is Tara Isabella Burton, who spoke at the 2016 Festival herself. Like Tobin, she's observed religious practices from all corners of the globe, writing for National Geographic, The Wall Street Journal, and Al Jazeera, among many other publications. She's currently the religion writer for Vox, and her first novel, Social Creature, comes out next summer. Hello, this is Tara. Hey, Tara, it's Lisa. Oh, hi, how are you? I'm good. How are you doing? Uh, Good, good, thank you. (laughs) Good. Thanks so much for joining us today, Tara. Where did we find you?
1: I am um, working from home today uh, in New York City, where I'm based with Vox.com. I am um, still haven't quite unpacked my suitcase. I just came back from Asheville, where I was interviewing witches during the eclipse. And now I'm about to go to Nashville uh, with an N for the Religion Writers Conference. Fantastic.
0: Um, okay, so before we go on, I want to hear a little bit about the witches in Asheville and the eclipse. What did you get into down there?
1: There were lots of different... Um, it's a very witchy town. Um, okay. it's very, a lot of people there are very involved in different new age spiritual practices. And, um, I did a piece about the eclipse was sort of very significant cosmically for many of them. And there was a bit of a divide between the people who wanted to use it as a time to do rituals or spells with very political or global impact to as an act of political resistance on the left. Mm-hmm. And there are people who wanted to do something more personal and felt that it was time to practice self-care or to take care of themselves, and that that debate became the uh, the heart of that piece. So I very much enjoyed doing it.
0: We loved having you as a speaker yourself at the 2016 Festival, and wanted to bring you on to talk a little bit about M.T. Anderson's talk at in 2016. Um, and he talked about the sacred and the strange, and how what he, we would consider strange rituals um, from largely other people's kind of faith practices can help us better understand or see our own faith practices. Uh, He says this, he has this great, uh, point that he makes kind of throughout the, the conversation and he which he talks about how literature makes the ordinary strange in a way that lets you actually see the ordinary with fresh eyes.
1: Absolutely I think that's it's kind of both it's making the stra- the ordinary strange and, and making the strange ordinary That's mm. so much of my work when I'm when I'm writing about whether it's um, Sufi mystics uh, on the Chechen border or it's a hermit or it's a practicing wicked in Asheville um so much of what I do and my approach is um, I hope not to sensationalize anything, but really just kind of treat it the same way you'd treat anything, which is to say what's going on. What are the emotional dynamics at stake? What is the significance for this person of this ritual, this action, and also some of the boring stuff of, all right, we need to, to light a candle. Oh no, we, we have to find a, a lighter and these kind of little banal <laughs> moments. Right. Um, also tell you about people and, I think that it kind of allows you then to reflect on your own practice and realize mm-hmm. that often, you know, it's so easy to separate out some kind of idolized notion of a foreign practice, be it a spell or mm-hmm. um, a, a prayer, a, a zikr in, in the Sufi tradition, and think of it as something kind of utterly mystical and strange. Then sometimes when we think about our own practices, whether for being an Episcopalian, so I'll go to church, and sometimes it'll be... A transformative experience, and sometimes I'll be a little hungry, or sometimes I'll mm-hmm. be chatting to someone next to me, and there's a very sort of human moment in that. Right. That that sort of is cultural, that's that's human, that's sometimes even banal or ordinary, and yet it's only by kind of a, applying that to another practice that I'm w- witnessing and watching the intersection of the the personal, the spiritual, and the day to day, and the sort of moments of sanctity that I'm able to kind of see that dynamic for what it is in, in my own faith. Definitely.
0: So one of the things M.T. Um, Anderson talks about that I thought was really interesting in this in this piece, uh, in this talk, is that he makes this connection between kind of this religious space uh, and this religious practice in which the participants are o- often kind of in a tension between believing and not believing. So this is something he talked about with the with the, the Javanese trans dance kind of at the beginning um, with, with people who it's like, do they believe they're possessed? Do they they not. It's a little. They're a little coy about it. It's a little unclear, um, but it's this religious practice that's meaningful to them. And he was trying to find an analog for something here in. Um, in the United States and North America, that we might kind of um, be in a similar space with. And one of the things he makes this connection to is writing, and how when you're writing, you are asked to, or you're you're tasked with trying to kind of conjure lots of different stories and ideas that you're kind of believing in, and also knowing these people don't actually exist, or you don't necessarily have. Uh, immediate access to them, um, depending on if it's nonfiction or fiction. But I wondered about that um, that believing and not believing and how those things relate to each other in your writing when you're doing um, nonfiction, but maybe also when you're writing fiction um, with this, this new novel, how that works in your writing process.
1: Sure, absolutely. Well, there's, there's two ways for me that writing fiction is very much about negotiating that tension between belief and unbelief. And for me, the, the first one, perhaps the most significant one, is at the level of plot. We, as, a, as writers, often ask something, we ask faith of our readers, and I'm particularly conscious of this, because my, my novel, a Social Creature, it's about kind of, it's about a murder, and about mm-hmm. a woman who covers up this murder for several hundred pages uh, <laughs> by impersonating the woman that she's killed, mm-hmm. and that's, you know, it's completely implausible. This is, I, I hope, has never <laughs> happened in the history of humanity, and yet as a writer, what I'm asking a reader to do is abide with me and believe that this could happen. And Mm -hmm. she doesn't, or he doesn't believe this because it's plausible or because the details of hiding the body are particularly believable, Mm Though I hope that they are, but because there's a kind of emotional truth of maybe you could be pushed to the end of your tether. Maybe you are someone who who has imposter syndrome in every aspect of your life, why wouldn't you also have imposter syndrome (laughs) trying to cover up a murder? And trying to invite someone to have faith in something completely implausible as an extension of something emotionally real is absolutely at the heart of what we do as storytellers. We say, here's this crazy thing that never happened, but believe it anyway, because it's Mm -hmm. also true in this other way. And for me, that's one element. Another element is at the level of character. Um, So much... I think about this a lot that kind of our greatest sin in a sense in our own lives is thinking of ourselves as the, the hero of our own stories and everyone else is you know, the villain or the, mm-hmm. the pawn. And we kind of objectify other people as and make it easy for them to, or make it easy for us to discard them because our own narratives are so important. And I think as a writer, it's on us to, to show how flawed that that conception is by fully believing in each of the characters we write and allowing each of them to be a center of consciousness, each of them to be the hero of their own story. Sure, maybe within this story that I'm telling, there is a clear protagonist. And yet, as a writer, I feel like I have to inhabit, I have to become every single character and see each character I write in their full humanity, because otherwise the book would be flat. For me, so right. much of the the tragedy of, of life and kind of the dramatic tension of a good book is when everybody's a hero in their own story, and then all these mm-hmm. stories are butting up against each other and contradicting each other. And that's where, that's where drama comes from. It's, you know, right. Alice wants this and Bob wants something else. And that's mm-hmm. a story. Yeah. And so as I, I, I have to believe not just in the characters that are similar to me or the characters I would necessarily sympathize with most because they're most like me but i have to believe in and become and subscribe to a world in which a character that is entirely unlike me is a center of consciousness is the protagonist even if that character's only on on, on screen on, mm-hmm. the page on the page for, yeah. for five pages
0: mhm yeah well um thanks so much for your time no worries well thank you talk to you later tara bye bye, bye. bye. And now, M.T. Anderson on The Sacred and the Strange at the 2016 Festival of Faith and Writing. A note to our listeners, this episode does include content that might not be appropriate for younger listeners.
2: Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> so I, uh, I just had a really uh, uh, miraculous experience myself. I was walking in your beautiful uh, forest over there, and uh, as I walked down this uh, wooded... Uh, Pathway. I ran into Mary Rufel, the poet, um, who's here for this conference, which was unexpected for me. Um, and I said, hey, Mary, how are you? But, she, I, you know, I said, I know you probably don't want to, uh, to chat. You look like you're meditating. And she said, um, stick out your tongue at the sun. <laughs> and I said, okay. And so the two of us sta- sat there like, stuck out our tongues <laughs> at the, uh, at the sort of the giver of life, the giver of light. And then she said, um, she said around her tongue, it maximizes the vitamin D. <laughs> so there's your real piece of wisdom for the day. The rest of this talk is, uh, is just nugatory. So, okay, I'm going to talk about the sacred and the strange today. Some thoughts on writing and the extremes of religious practice. So, I should say I uh, grew up in the town of Stowe, which is a... Um, a dull little town in Massachusetts, and we liked it dull. Uh, we liked the fact that it was a very standard American town, um, you know, standard Congregational church, uh, standard Carnegie library, made out of brick from 1900. Uh, oh, that's not it. That's yeah, that's the uh, that's the stop and shop. But um, yeah, um, so because I. Um, because I had grown up in a town that was sort of very small, very quiet, very standard, I felt very restless, and I've spent a lot of my life traveling around the world to uh, to places that were very unlike what I knew when I was growing up, um, like this. Uh, which, um, where the hell's that? Yeah. <laughs> okay. Um, so, and I also grew up um, in a deeply Christian context, so many of my family members have lived in religious communities of one kind or another, and my mother is an Episcopal priest. She's actually here today. Say hello to the, wave to the people. Wave to the nice people, Mom. There she is. Oh, there's my dad. Hey, Dad. <laughs> Good to see you. Sorry, it's been a few months. Um, okay, so. Uh, And because of that as I've traveled around because I grew up in this deeply Christian context as I've traveled around I've always been particularly drawn to and fascinated by the extremes of religious practice So I have gone to ancient monastic cities in the Himalayas um, Ancient monastic cities in Europe. I have followed the route of the Albigensian crusade and gone to the uh, palace of the anti-pope at Avignon um, attended the festival of the child goddess of Kathmandu and um, scoured the Taklamakan desert with a friend of mine to uh, find the tombs of Uyghur Muslim saints, the, uh, the Mazars. Here we are, um, in fact, seeking one that turned out to be on top of the ruins of a, uh, a temple to a Buddhist rat king. Um, Anyway, um, so I don't like to brag, but I have actually had a uh, a life-threatening allergic reaction on every continent on the planet. (laughs) Um, Here I am, for example, um, here I am suffering from anaphylaxis in the Pyrenees. I realize actually that I have, not, um, I have never been to South America, so that's not so. But I, I'm allergic to legumes, and I feel like South America is a very legume heavy culture. I, so I think it's kind of like a shoe in. Like, you know what I mean? Like, all this land, get some red beans and rice, and boom! You know? Okay, so today I'm going to talk about some of the religious practices I've witnessed, which were most alien to me, and how they might relate to literature. Um, for me, writing and reading are some of the most important approaches to a sensation of the sublime. They are spiritual acts. So I want to discuss writing as right, R-I-T-E. The three religious rites I'll be talking about are not things that are mainstream in this country. Uh, Possession and exorcism, animal sacrifice, and perhaps most alien to the American mindset, uh, celibacy. (laughs) Now, uh, a word about my uh, method here. I'm basically talking about writing but using religious rite as a metaphor. I am not a scholar of religion, as in fact some of you are. But it should be absolutely clear that these acts, however fascinating I might find them, are not quaint or exotic and are certainly not undertaken as a spectacle to wow spiritual tourists like me. They are not, um, they're not conducted to give you know, upper middle class Elizabeth Gilberts their epiphanies. Um, they are deeply ingrained with symbolic and spiritual value for the participants that is, in fact, only partially visible to those of us who come from outside those communities. And that must be understood and respected. Um, now, the first example I'm going to use is the uh, the Javanese uh, trance dance. So um, I was uh, in the island of Java with my uh, sister, um, uh, and we had heard about these... Uh, These dances—they called them in English—they called them trance dances, where supposedly uh, the dancers are actually um, possessed by spirits during the dance and do all kinds of crazy, self-harming things under the influence of those spirits, and then are exorcised at the end of the dance. And uh, so I said, "Well, I uh, would love to see this." We had this friend who was a uh, from a really uh, garbagey Javanese. uh, garage band, and um, he said that he could hook us up with a trance dance if we, when one happened. There had to be a ceremony, though, that was going with it. He finally found out that there was going to be a circumcision ritual up in a village up um, in the mountains above Yogyakarta, and that we could go to that. And I thought, sure, a I, uh, I circumcision the party sounds fun. Finally, I can... <laughs> I can attend a party where there's guaranteed to be at least one person who's more miserable than me. So we, uh, we drove, you know, our motorbikes up into the hills and, um, and uh, found this little village where they had set out a, um, a dancing space. There are about, I don't know, maybe 150, 200 people from the village standing around. Um, and um, they, they did this trance dance that lasted starting at around 10 or 11 at night, um, all through the night. And I have uh, just a couple of clips to show you, but keep in mind that um, this was... Uh, I did not have good technology. I was running out of space, and I was for a lot of time sitting under a table trying not to be rained on um, because it was a little monsoony. So so at first, for about an hour or so, they just did these very repetitive dances, sort of getting themselves into a trance state. Let's see if the uh, video actually works. Um, And um, yeah, so here they are, you know, sort of dancing around with, in fact, these wicker hobby horses. Um, that then at certain points the music changes and they have these stylized mock battles that um, that I also have a uh, quick clip of. These stylized mock battles... Uh, um And um, it actually is in some ways, in terms of a, um, in terms of a, uh, a dancing thing, it is, uh, to me, was eerily um, similar in some ways to, um, uh, if any of you know traditional British Morris dancing, where they also have hobby horses and a lot of the dancing is very stylized battle dancing. It's very odd that here that you also have this kind of, like, these wicker horses. Anyway, after a while of this dancing, the thing is, you know, they had this, uh, here's a moment of syncretism, traditional Indonesian instruments and then a Western drum kit set up. And, um, and after, you know, a few hours of watching this, you end up, I mean, there's just like these cycles of repetition. Everyone is in sort of a trance state. But at that point, the dancers start to collapse and finally collapse entirely onto the ground. Um, And then gradually, they wake up, and this is the state in which they're supposedly possessed. And so as they get up, they, um, they move in something that is very much like a kind of a, a zombie movie fashion. And at this point, the idea is that, the, uh, is that supposedly they are inhabited by these spirits, and the spirits have to be placated by being allowed to do slightly uh, grotesque things. Because if they, were, if they are not placated, they will um, essentially destroy the body that they are in. So, um, now, keep in mind that what I'm wondering while a lot of this is going on, is what is the connection with this ritual, with the uh, ritual circumcision? I mean, remember that um, Java is actually a, um, a Muslim island. So this is actually clearly a, a um, preserved right from a pre-Muslim culture. Um, so I was very interested to know, how is this supposed to theologically connect with that circumcision? Why does this possession need to happen for the circumcision to happen? Um, don't worry, I don't have pictures of the circumcision. Um, but okay, so after they get up, the, what they do is they, um, there is a table set up with stuff for them. And they all do these kind of feats of... Um, hypnotized self-harm so doing things like eating glass or um one thing they did a lot was drinking a, a, um, a perfumed embalming fluid um and um and that kind of thing and um and and people from the audience were so head up by this some of them were also not many but a couple guys were entranced or maybe just drunk and came down and and you know they would sort of beat their heads against things and that kind of thing then at this point um Gradually, what they tried to do is they, a, a sort of a shaman came out who was wearing a, not only a uh, sarong, but also in another moment of syncretism, a Tasmanian devil t-shirt. Um, I don't know if he got the irony. Um, and uh, they sort of, and, and what he did uh, here, oh, I'm sorry, this is actually a, oh, no, 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 okay. And so, and he would sort of lay them down and quiet them. And he was kind of like the demon, the demon whisperer. He would kind of quiet them down and supposedly sort of draw the spirit out of them. And then gradually they would kind of become fixed on the ground and they would be carried out, which you can actually see here. Uh, and you can see the rain has picked up quite a bit too. And there's the guy in the background, for example, who and they would be removed and the, the idea is that at this point they are uh, they will wake up in, uh, inside one of the huts and they will be returned to human consciousness so um, so i was still wondering what is the connection between this and circumcision and i tried to talk to people about it but you know i didn't know um, javanese and they didn't know english um, so the one friend of mine who did speak English. He was trying to explain, but it, they all kind of gave me this weird glance when I tried to ask about what, it, what was going on. And it, finally I realized that there was no connection between this and the circumcision beyond the fact that this was kind of like a party act that you put on, like you hire a troop To come and do this. This is. It turns out this is a troop that does this regularly. These are not like guys from the village who are possessed by the spirit. They actually come in from the outside and do this. And the idea is that you uh, you put this on as a spread to show your sort of you know your um, magnanimity toward the town. Like the the town all gets this evening of bizarre entertainment. Um, And uh, you can see this in a sense. I mean, they were coy about the reality of possession too. I would say, well, so are they really? And they would say, not that I didn't talk to the dancers, but, you know, other people would say, I don't know, what do you think? And it, it felt very much like, okay, this is probably something that where um, their sense of belief is very moderated right? And especially because they're later in, like at 2 or 3 in the morning was a women's version and there was not the same kind of like misrule zombie craziness as the men. There was not a kind of monstrousness to it. You could see that it was curated in a sense. The women started to actually move in a more sinuous, elegant way based on a lot of the Indonesian dancing um, when they were possessed rather than moving in a more monstrous way. Um, I have to... Uh, to boast that um, one of the demon-possessed girls did ask to dance with me. <laughs> so. Wait, maybe that was like tenants. <laughs> anyway. Um, but also, you know, that actually does play into the thing that, um, that, uh, that in a sense, having the, the one tall white guy in the audience, drawing him out into the rain and having him dance is in a sense, a very crowd-pleasing act. You know what I mean? And so there is also this sense of a performance here. So I was like, well, to what extent is it trance? And to what extent is it calculated? To what extent is this a learned skill? And I mean, I think that the people there, the adults at least there, assumed pretty much that it was at most a trance, and perhaps actually a feat of, um, of concentration, more than even that. So you have these people in the audience who are simultaneously believing and not believing, knowing and not knowing. So I tried to think of a standard American practice which could be used as an analogy. And you know, the, at first I was thinking, well, in a way, it's kind of like a magician. You hire the party ma- magician. Um, but you know, on the other hand, we absolutely know that like Siegfried and Roy are not magical. Um, so and I realized, well, maybe, in fact, it's actually what it's most like is writing. Um, it's this experience that is supposed to remove you from the normal, remove you from what you know, so that you can be inhabited by someone else. This is what writers struggle with, trying to fill ourselves with other people while we know, in fact, that we're doing no such thing. At best, it's a kind of trance state, mixing the trance and the calculation, the training. And our readers participate, too, uh, believing and not believing, knowing and not knowing. Weirdly enough, they are dazzled by our ability to fool them, while not fooling them at all. Now, this does not mean that the right is somehow fakery or that it doesn't have a spiritual dimension. These possession rights mark off an evening from everyday life. That's part of it. You know, the the, the boy who is uh, circumcised that night will have as a um, memory, as another memory, <laughs> um, um, you know, the memory that the, this was that the the town came together in this evening um, to celebrate with him Um, so it's supposed to transform time now um, this is a basic element of religious practice this move toward a certain kind of like alienation from the world being removed from what you know into another place is a a basic um, aspect of religious practice Let's think for a second about pilgrimages, one of the most important rites in many religions. Um, Consider this um, Buddhist monastery built in the middle of a literal desert, like the Christian monasteries and hermitages of the West. Imagine yourself building a home in this wasteland, calling this place home. Imagine drawing people away from their communities, away from their towns and their oases, away from the structures they know, the societies they know, out beyond the comfortable world to this desolate place. They leave their homes so that they can go out into a new and difficult place, because this this is the only way that they can have a vision. Um, Or, uh, you know, I talked earlier about the Kaptar Mazar, the the tombs of the Uyghur Muslim saints. at this site, down the hill, there was actually a small house, perhaps a a pilgrim's rest. In fact, my friend who I was with later went back. He speaks Uyghur, and he he then celebrated many times back there with some of the pilgrims there. Um, And so it's made of grasses and wood and roofed with mud. Oddly enough, when we found it, there was a pair of white women's high heels by the wall, which um, seems like a surprising thing to decide to wear. But (laughs) once again, maybe a penance. I don't know. Keep in mind that this was miles from any road. So, um, yeah. Um, anyway, so um, so uh, this was also a place that people go to out in the desert to remove themselves from their town, from their oasis, and to have an experience uh, that takes them beyond what they know. They go into the wilderness so they can be outside society and understand society. It's a strange place to visit, I thought. The idea of home, or at least of shelter would here be desolation, unconsoling and basic, the plains, some weeds, the tombs, the sand. But you would know, wouldn't you, if you stayed there, you'd always have thrust before you that home is anyways just a burrow for curling, and the hills are always fleeing on the wind, and we are all in the final account, simply this, bright scraps hung on bones, blown between earth and sky. Now, we like to think of our home as secure, but what we know as home does not need to be home. Architecture that speaks of home to us, iconically, so let's say in an ad for paint, um, you know, paint commercials. You see the colonial house, the white picket fence. That is not actually, that is a symbol for home and yet is not home for most most of us even here in North America. Does this actually represent a picture of where we live? How much do we take for granted about home? Um, How much do we not see of the strangeness of our own home? For example, I walk through my apartment in a country that calls itself the most rational and advanced nation in the world. I touch a spot on the wall and believe, for some reason, that light will emanate from a glass bowl on the ceiling. I twist a crank and believe that a streamlet will flow. At night, I hear knocking in the walls, crawling up from the basement, and think not that the house is possessed, but rather that I will be warm in the winter. So what does this mean to us as readers and writers? Well, there are some books that, presume, that accept the world as we've always known it, and presume that it makes sense. Um, there are others that recognize that home is, built in the, is always built in the desert, that it is always makeshift, and that it, not, uh, it need not be as it has been and will not always be as it is now. Just as a home or a hermitage needs to be built in an empty place brick by brick, our novels are being constructed word by word from the smallest unit to the largest structure. It can be of our own design or we can build it prefab. So on every level, from the smallest thing we do in a book to the largest levels, there is a connection of... Um, what it is that we assume people will know, and what it is that we are sort of where we are setting off on our own path alone. So, for example, we start on the level of the word. Words can be clichéd, individual words can be clichéd, or words can be unexpected. They can take us to a new place. Simply the choice of a single word. On the level of a sentence, the sentence can bring together elements that you'd never expect to see together and revitalize your sense of uh, the connections in the world or a sentence can tell you exactly what it is you expected to hear. On the level of the plot and the narrative, some of them take us to a place that's a complete shock, some of them actually uh, uh, take you to some place that you can predict right from the beginning. Novels can decide which way to go. Um, And then these things in some ways lead us to a sense of the culture itself, the society. Do we take the society for granted? Does this book take the society for granted? Because all of the other cliches, in a sense, tend to be things that the society is invested in. And the whole way we, we see reality, finally, is built upon all of these images that we ingest through the course of our life and that make us assume that the world is a particular way. They naturalize the world as it is. Or, in other cases, they call that world into question. So this points to what I see as the fundamental function of literature. As with those who go on pilgrimages to this site in the desert. Um, We leave home because otherwise we can never come home again. Um, We can never see what our home looks like except from a different and distant hill. Literally, geographically that's true. And it's also true spiritually, I think. Um, as T.S. Eliot, I shouldn't keep walking back out here because I keep having to push this button. As T.S. Eliot said in um, Little Gidded, um, we shall not cease from exploration. And the end of all our exploring will be to arrive where we started and know the place for the first time. In some way, the voyage of the reader and the writer is like this. We go out into the unknown so that we no longer take the world for granted. For me, this is the definition of what distinguishes literature from other forms of writing, is that literature is that, is that kind of writing that divorces you from what you know, that takes you on the pilgrimage. Um, there is a, um, in the early 20th century, there was a lot of talk about this, especially among the uh, literary movement called the formalists. The Russian formalist like Viktor Shklovsky, was one of the first people to say this. He, the way that he put it was this. After we see an object several times, we begin to recognize it. The object is in front of us, and we know about it, but we do not see it anymore. Hence, we cannot say anything significant about it. Habitualization devours works, clothes, furniture, one's wife, and the fear of war. And art exists that one may recover the sensation of life as it exists, to make one feel things, to make the stone stony, the purpose of art is to impart the sensation of things as they are perceived and not as they are known. The technique of art is to make objects unfamiliar. So um, he talked about uh, sort of an alienation. Oh, so he said that, that things in the world become naturalized after we read about them, after we get used to them. They are naturalized, we no longer question them, they seem like they make inherent sense. And then uh, art and I would say also certain forms of religion exist to estrange us from what we know. Keep in mind that the word strange actually originally in English means quite literally foreign. So estrangement is actually the making foreign again of something. A stranger is a foreigner, quite literally. That's what strange originally meant. Estrangement is this removal of the self almost geographically from what you know. Um, So the um, the sacred is the strange in some ways. Both remove us from the lower world into a world of visions. The pilgrim or the possessed seek out the experience of distance, of estrangement to see their own lives transformed. In the same way, we should not look at others' religious practices because they're exotic, but because they force us to recognize that our practices are exotic, are strange, are perhaps even Mm -hmm. nonsensical. So um, another example of this, my second example, animal sacrifice. Now, historically, um, animal sacrifice is often used by Europeans, especially in the 16th, 17th, 18th century, as proof of a nation's barbarity. So it's an excuse to go in and slaughter the inhabitants by the tens of thousands until they stop and recognize the superior kindliness and rationality of Christian civilization. (laughs) So... I've had to, um, to acclimate myself to animal sacrifice in some countries. Um, it's just it's a fact of life and a way of life in some places. Um, here, for example, in the town of uh, Daksin Kali, which is um, one of the, it's right near one of the big sacrificial sites in Nepal, um, I attended a festival where um, they built these, um, these palanquins for, uh, for gods that are in these sort of jugs that they then... Uh, they, um, they're all over the town, and they, uh, then um, they pick them up w- every night and they walk with them and uh, they circulate around the town in a clockwise direction, blessing the town for the year. And at the end of this 10-day festival, and those of you w- who uh, are tender-hearted should close your eyes for a moment, I'll tell you when you can open them. Um, at the end of this 10-day festival, they, they um, sacrifice a bull that is born on the first day of the festival, so one that is uh, 10 days old, okay, I've switched the slide. You can look back again. Um, and um, uh, this is one of the few times that I really was disturbed by an animal sacrifice for various reasons I won't go into. And I should note that there are times, like um, the, um, uh, in uh, uh there's a, a Nepalese sacrifice that is, um, where uh, tens of thousands of cattle are slain at once, which uh, has, I think, probably for the best, been, uh, been shut down. But um, more typical... Uh, is of this town that I showed you. Let's do, have, no, I don't have a photograph of it again. But anyway, the town I showed you near there, there's a sacrificial site deep in a gorge um, to the goddess Kali. And it's a really amazing place. I didn't take any photos because I thought that it would be uh, cheesy to, or just voyeuristic to take pictures of people engaged in what were to them very profound religious practice. But it's a, a place where there's a giant, um, a giant uh, brass snake in this valley and people go underneath it and they take the family when they're facing uh, difficult obstacles will take a chicken there usually and uh, the young men there will slaughter the, the, uh, the chicken um, cutting its throat over a statue of Kali. The blood will, the blood belongs to Kali, it goes on to her and then they, um, the corpse of the animal is taken off um, to uh, essentially a barbecue pit, and they, they the family then eats the the rest of the chicken um, as a kind of a you know I mean there's a, it's a, it has a kind of a festival atmosphere. Now um, now I mean uh, this seems very uh, alien to most of us, but the peculiar thing is I started to realize well wait a second if you look at this in purely mechanistic uh, terms or in fact from the view of the chicken involved. Um it has actually many of the features of an American barbecue. And I don't actually mean that as a joke. I don't mean that as a joke. But in a sense, if you look at the way that if you you are thinking of it as a cruel practice, it is worth saying what is uh, it is worth saying um if you take a look instead at also our own practices of slaughter. Um what does that mean? Um uh, if we want to talk for a second about barbarity, many of you are from agricultural communities as I live now in an agricultural community, and you know the difference about what goes on between what goes on in family farms and on actually the factory farms where most of the meat comes from in this country. Um, you know male chicks are thrown are called out, thrown into garbage bags by the thousands where they are. Um, are suffocated to death or crushed uh, in the, and then they're all taken out regardless in these garbage bags and put into the wood chipper to destroy them because they're not useful the um, females in laying houses for example are packed so tightly that they'll never turn around in the course of their lives they will quite literally never have room to spread their wings they just don't have room they're de-beaked from killing each other because they quickly degrade in these environments and become violent so their beaks are cut off with metal shears to stop them from goring each other Um, Factory-farm chickens, both broilers and layers, lead lives in festering, feces-caked rooms. Um, And this is where most of our American meat comes from. Is this really more humane than sacrifice? In the case of a Nepali chicken, they are, by and large, free-range. In fact, often in the restaurant near you, walking through. Um, But also, um, also, you know, I mean... uh, they, they, for one thing, don 't eat as much meat there it 's it's an incredibly expensive thing for them to have a chicken in the first place. So the question is, is our way of dealing with the lives and deaths of other creatures more civilized less bizarre than what we see here? I mean, of course, Christianity is as it is at its root based on a sacrificial theology. There is a reason that on Easter we celebrate the Lamb of God and eat lamb chops. Um, you know I was Uh, at a a Bickford's pancake house watching a group of people pray over a set of chicken cutlets thinking about this and thinking, okay, do we really believe that the Lord God of Jehovah, King of Kings, Lord of Sabaoth has arranged this chicken cutlet for us especially? Is the world ordained to so great a degree only to sustain us? Do we truly believe that God smiles upon all the complicated systems of processing, packaging, and shipping? Do we believe that he who dropped manna in the desert now injects birds with blessings providential as they are injected with hormone and antibiotic? Does the holy dove really rain benedictions down upon these birds when they are hung upside down on a conveyor belt and dragged through an electrified stun bath to uh, render them insensate? Do these people really believe that as each chicken faces the spinning blades that cut their throats, they hear whispered in their ears the sweet, soft, well done? And do these people believe that when the corpses are placed upon the centrifuge and spun at high speeds, the meat crawling away from the carcass, perhaps he who first spun galaxies and hurled the planets into orbit, he who clamped gravity to mass, the primum mobile, smiles at our minute ingenuity, our imitation of the Father above? Does Christ walk among the frozen patties as they are boxed and palletized? Perhaps this is what is meant when in the funeral mass we say, Omnis caro veniit ad te, all flesh comes to thee. Maybe they do believe this. Maybe a god does ordain all of this for his faithful servants. But it is certainly not the god who, as poet Alexander Pope says, sees with equal eye as god of all, a hero perish or a sparrow fall. Suffice it to say, I find it hard to believe that the world was made for mankind's consumption. Reacting to the apparent cruelty of another's cultural treatment of animals leads us to look at our own assumptions which it sounds like is going on out there, um, uh, leads us to look at our own assumptions about an anthropomorphic, uh, oh, sorry, anthropocentric world, a world in which mankind is considered to be the center of everything, about all the species of living things that are forced to endure suffering and death so that humans can devour them. The glimpse of someone else's practice prompts us to question the legitimacy of our own. Um, and whoops, finally, I'm going to talk about celibacy. So... The medieval period is a favorite for dreams of romance and for novels about romance, partially because everyone looks so much better draped. But um, <laughs> um, I want to talk about Christina of Markgate, who's a little-known uh, Christian teenager, in fact, and um, one of the reasons why her story absolutely fascinates me. And it's been translated. It's in Oxford University Press as a translation, which is what I read. And um, so uh, her incredible story resembles in so many ways a YA period romance. (laughs) So uh, she is born in 1100. And just like in a typical YA, you know, historical romance, she's this plucky, resourceful girl. You can't read this without loving her. And her parents tell her she has to marry a particular boy. And what's interesting is we can reconstruct from the... uh, So this is 1100, around just a little bit after 1100. And we can reconstruct from the family names, her family names, the fact that she came from an Anglo-Saxon family, and that now, in 1066, the Normans have invaded England, and the Normans are in control. And her family was clearly trying to set her up in a marriage that would connect them with their Norman rulers now, because there's now this need for kind of like... Uh, for an ethnic cross-pollinization. They need to connect themselves with the Normans uh, to to have um, a lot of sort of privileges and things. Um, So um, they choose a good match for her, but he's not the boy she wants to marry. See, this goes very well along with your typical YA scenario. And she says it's because she has already promised herself to another man. So this is the perfect setup for a YA romance. You have the plucky heroine standing up to the greedy parents. Now this is where the alterity of religion, that is to say the essential difference of, um, of Christina and her time, intervenes in the story. Because I don't think I need to tell you that that other man is Christ. So, and this would not be the solution that would be used in a YA novel now. <laughs> so, and now uh, to go a little bit more into depth into her story, because she is so adorable. I, I love her. So as a small child, She had heard that Christ was good, beautiful, and everywhere present, so she used to talk to him at night and on her bed as if he were a man whom she could see. She did this in a high, piping voice so that she could be heard and understood by others in the same house. She thought that since she was speaking to God, no one else could hear her, but when people teased her, she changed her ways. So um, when she was, I think it was about 13 or 14, um, a uh, a bishop connected with the family came to visit. Now, this bishop was the king's right-hand man, so a very important Norman lord as well as being a bishop. But he also had taken um, Christina, this girl, Christina's aunt to be his concubine, Um, and she had had several of his children. However, he was getting a little tired of her, and he sees young Christina and decides that she's next in line. So he ordered her to come to his bedchamber at night. She went in obediently, discovered what was going to go on, and uh, being a resourceful heroine, said, oh, let me just close the door so that, um, you know, no one, we don't attract attention. And then um, when she went over to the door, she ran away. <laughs> um, so the bishop was really peeved. And he, in his anger, told his parents to marry her off and set up this, this, uh, this connection with a young man of good family. And, of course, the thing is that um, the family wants to impress this bishop who is the king's right-hand man. So they're trying to force their daughter to marry this, this young man um, whose name is um, Bjortred, which is interesting because now I just noticed that it's actually almost a, um, an anagram of betrothed. Hmm. Anyway, hmm. Um... So, the description of of Christina is, in fact, like a plucky YA novel heroine. Here's the description. Such integrity, such beauty, such graciousness shone forth in Christina that all who knew her esteemed her to be above all other women. Furthermore, she was so shrewd in understanding, so prudent in affairs, so efficient in carrying out her plans, that if she had wished to devote herself to the things of this world, she could have enriched and ennobled not only herself, but also all her relatives. To this was added the fact that they hoped that she would give birth to children who would take after their mother. So keen were they on these rewards that they begrudged her a life of virginity. So they call in all the heavy guns of patriarchy, the abbots, the bishops. It's, it's, this is, it's really, really an interesting story. Um, and finally, they thrust the young man into the room with her and say, come on let's make it happen, and she sits the kid down and gives him a stern talking all night about how this is a wonderful opportunity for them to perhaps become really good friends. <laughs> and, um, and she cites other examples of, uh, of married couples who had, uh, who had never consummated their marriage and who had then retreated to their own convent and, and uh, monastery. She convinces him that this is what they need to do. He kind of miserably leaves the room in the morning. Um, so this is how, uh, however, uh, then his, his friends intervene. Um, when those that had got him into the room heard what had happened, they joined together in calling him a spineless and useless fellow. With many reproaches, they goaded him on again, and on another night thrust him forcefully into the bridal chamber, warning him neither to be misled by Christina's deceitful tricks and naive words, nor to let her unman him. Notice the language. He was to get his way either by force or entreaty. And if neither of these sufficed, he was to know that they were standing by to help him. He must just remember to act the man." Now note here how patriarchy works on actually the male character as well as the female. The phrase is like to unman him, to act the man. So behavior is being modified in a sense through the sense of masculinity for the male as well as for the female. So this guy is thrust in. Um, Christina hears that he's coming. Once again, so she, she's plucky, she's plucky. She grabs a nail on the wall and pulls herself up so she's standing on the nail in between a tapestry and the wall, okay? And so the guy goes in and she's disappeared. So he goes to his fingers, and goes, I can't find her now. And so they all come in and they start looking, right? How she trembled in fear of her life as they noisily sought her. Was she not faint with fear? She imagined herself already dragged out in their midst with them all surrounding her, leering at her threatening her, abandoned to the violation of her seducer. Finally, one of them by chance touched and held her foot as she hung there. But since the curtain between them deadened his sense of touch, he let it go, not knowing what it was. So I love this girl. She is superb. Um, and her mother torments her, trying to send her to parties where um, she is, uh, you know, she is uh, exposed to kind of body jokes and drinking. They try to get her drunk, um, and, you know, I mean, this is real. We know, actually, what body jokes of the Middle Ages are like. This, this, uh, this is a collection, in fact, Fabio Erotique. But I will tell you that, um, that you know, as a, as a text to be read against the Christina text, these are really interesting because the idea of an of a, uh, erotic, quote-unquote, joke in the Middle, Age, Middle Ages is really what we would now see a, as a hate crime. They really are all about what we would essentially call rape and then the men making fun of the women for having been raped. That is sort of the big joke of the Middle Ages. And so this is the kind of culture Christina was confronting. Her mother was thrusting her into this culture. Her father, even the bishops, the king's advisors, were trying to get her to enter this culture. Finally, there was one time when, on an impulse, um, her mother took her away from a banquet and, out of sight, seized her by the hair and beat her till she grew tired of it. She then brought her back, lacerated as she was, into the presence of the revelers for them to mock her. The scars on her back never faded as long as she lived. So she ran away. That was it. She ran away and hid. She, she hid in a secret um, hermitage in a cell, a tiny wet cell. Um, and uh, it says, though in her hiding place she was hidden from men, she could never escape the notice of demons. In order to terrify the holy maiden of Christ, toads invaded her, pri- sorry, toads invaded her prison to distract her by all kinds of ugliness their sudden appearance with their big and terrible eyes was most frightening, for they squatted here and there, settling themselves right in the middle of the psalter, which lay open on the lap of the bride of Christ for her use at all hours. When she refused to move and would not give up singing her psalms, they went away. I love the idea of her sitting there singing the psalms to get the toads to disappear. This is super- also, though, very important, because note that she is actually reading, which is very unusual for someone who has not taken holy orders. And that in fact, um, this illustration is actually her, the one, uh, you know, just the woman just there, is actually supposedly her because this, which was one of the uh, most sort of expensive, opulent um, illuminated manuscripts of the 11th century, or sorry, 12th century, was given to her, and this was actually pasted in. So we do actually think that that is a, a, a portrait of her when she was a woman. So she became a very powerful religious figure. She corresponded with the Pope. Um, she was clearly headed for sainthood, which is why this life exists. But something happened. We don't know what. Her application for sainthood after her death is cut off mid-sentence. Someone decided it was not happening, and, um, and so she never quite made it to sainthood um, after her death. Now, um, a modern version of her story would have her fall in love with a man and soften her views. And she did fall in love with the abbot of St. Albans. The Vita says as much, but they decided to be strong and not to give in to lust. They do carry on a deeply loving Platonic relationship for years. The demands of modern post-Freudian psychology require that, for a happy ending, Christina of Margate needs to recognize that her desire for Christ is just a sublimated sexual desire for another man. She then needs to, um, I can't read my own writing. Oh, she then needs to hook up passionately and hotly with the Abbot of St. Albans. Um, (laughs) Um, I I, I have a note here that looks like monk's hood bodice ripper, (laughs) you know, that kind of pose, you know. So, but that solution seems to me entirely reductive and disempowering. I don't care if you believe what Christina believes or not. I want Christina of Marchate to get what she wants, not what we want her to want as modern people. I am rooting for her. I am rooting for what she wants. Here is a girl who, as a child, takes all the tools of a crushingly patriarchal system and forges her own theology by herself, something that will serve to protect her and to protect her spiritual life. That's incredible. To turn her story into a modern human romance rather than a very medieval, um, somewhat alien, divine romance is, in essence, to perform the same violence on her that her parents attempted? Why do we need to tell her that we know better than her what she really wants? Why do we need to demand she follows our plot when she's struggling so bravely to follow her own? Why would we demand this tacky anachronism to be involved with Christina's story? It's just like Justin Bieber writing in the guest book at the Anne Frank House that he hopes that if she'd been alive, she would have been a believer. That actually happened. (laughs) Yeah, it really happened, yeah, classy. And for once, he's a Canadian, not an American, thank God. Um, Christina's story, like the other religious practices I've talked about, invites us to estrange ourselves from what we know. It invites us to see our own well-known world as foreign, as estranged. On the one hand, Christina is like the heroine of a Hawaii romance, but she was intent on an anti-romantic narrative, one which is very alien to us. In a sense, this teenage girl, dead, for almost a thousand years, who stood up against all the might of the church, the state, and the family. She offers us a critique of our own highly sexualized culture, too. She offers us renewed insights into the traps and double binds in which we snare girls and young women through viciously enforced and conflicting cultural demands and ideologies. This is the great purpose of literature, as with many rites, to open a space where we can glimpse our world from the outside, even though we're trapped on the globe's hide. We seek a vantage point to see from, some place we can look back from so we can finally see what we already know. This is the only way to know the place for the first time. It is important for us to question our world. It's important for us to demand to know things anew, and especially in writing for children, which I do. It is important to let them know that the world they're being handed is not the world that has to exist. It is important for political reasons. A democracy will only function so long as the electorate is ready to ask tough questions and get and swallow some tough answers. A capitalist society will only function so long as consumers seek to understand what they're really buying. But also, it is important for each of us personally to experience life fully, to touch the world that hangs so vividly all around us. And so, as readers, as writers, we dance like the possessed, trying to fill ourselves for a time with the alien, with the strange, with the sacred, with the eternal. We are all part of this dance, all pretending, yet all inhabited. All waiting for that moment of vision, however brief it may be, however it may leave us lying in the mud. Still, for a moment, we will have opened up our eyes and seen.
0: Thank you. many thanks to mt anderson you can check out his website at mt-anderson.com and follow him on twitter at underscore mt anderson thanks also to tara isabella burton you can learn more about her at taraisabellaburton.com and follow her on twitter at notorious tib Rewrite Radio is recorded at the Festival of Faith and Writing on the campus of Calvin College and produced by the Calvin Center for Faith and Writing. Our team includes John Brown, Don Hettinga, Jennifer Holberg, Scott Jose, Bob Hudson, Lou Klatt, Deb Reinstra, Amanda Smart, Sarah Turnage, Debbie Lisser, and James Wart. You can learn more about the Festival of Faith and Writing at festival.calvin.edu. And if you're into the social media, be sure to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. If you like what we're doing here on Rewrite Radio, please leave us a review on iTunes. It helps other people discover the show and we are so grateful. Also, we've got 26 years of festival recordings to explore here on Rewrite Radio. And if you've been at some of these festivals and have a favorite session or two that you're especially excited to hear on this podcast, just shoot me an email at ffw.calvin.edu and tell me about them. Just put Rewrite Radio in the subject line. Thanks for listening to Rewrite Radio. I'm Lisa Ann Cockrell, back soon with more from the Festival of Faith and Writing.